Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Deep Water, the new erotic thriller directed by Adrian Lyne. Best known for the real-life relationship between its stars, it features Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas as a wealthy married couple. Melinda habitually cheats on her husband Vic, who claims to tolerate her affairs, but when one of her lovers goes missing, it sets up a tense game of cat and mouse. So this movie I think we can safely describe as trashy, but it was entertaining. (laughs) It is getting unflattering middling to negative reviews, although it has also had a couple of raves, which is always an intriguing mix. And Adrian Lyne, the director, is like the most legendary Hollywood kind of erotic thriller director because he made Fatal Attraction and Indecent Proposal and Unfaithful, a trio of uh, very iconic, horny movies. And this is his first in 20 years and also an extreme rarity in today's Hollywood landscape where sex is banned. So an intriguing choice. Yeah. And I would say about the reviews, I feel like I've personally seen a complete across the gamut Everything from a rave to like three and a half stars, which is what I gave it on Letterboxd, to like, this is garbage and it's inexcusable, which I always find interesting (laughs) when the response is completely just like everything. Because (laughs) to me, that means that something interesting is happening, whether or not it's working, which ultimately in this movie, I don't think it is. Like, I think this movie is super entertaining and has things in it that work. But like, as a whole, it sort of flounders (laughs) at the end. But it fails in ways that I think are kind of interesting. And I was saying to someone... I basically think the central relationship between this married couple makes literally no sense. And we'll talk about the reasons why that might have come about. And yet, despite the like central driving plot engine of the movie, to me being like nonsense, I was like, this is great fun. I find it totally (laughs) watchable. Are you not entertained? (laughs) Right, exactly. And to me, that's a sign of success. Weirdly, like a very high compliment to be like, your movie doesn't make sense. And yet I would recommend it to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) So where do you want to start? I feel like there are many angles at which we could sort of come at this movie because there is so much to sort of talk about. So the backstory of the film itself is intriguing, right? Because like you've got Adrian Lyne, who, as I said, legendary specifically for making erotic thrillers, although he has done a few kind of general thrillers and horror movies as well. He's been away for 20 years. He comes back at the ripe old age of 78 slash 79 to make this film. It was in kind of pre-production for a while and then it got greenlit by a Fox subsidiary that specialised in these sort of mid-budget adult movies. And then once Fox was bought up by Disney, that turned this into a Disney film, which is kind of the beginning of the end for why this film got released on Hulu and is basically rapidly sinking without trace. But as I said in the intro, this movie is also famous for being the starter point for the banana relationship, which was like the number one paparazzi story of 2020. This couple was out there being photographed by paps every single day of the pandemic, out there buying their Dunkin' Donuts, their coffees, hanging out with their dogs, being the hugest relationship and then like breaking up after one year. It's a great example of like the genuine celebrity romance where it's like 
yes, they're out there 100% for publicity. And yes, they are engineering all of those paparazzi runs. Because when you're Ben Affleck, you can't avoid them. But at the same time, I fully believe it's a real relationship. They were in love and they really broke up. But yeah, now it's coming out after all that stuff. They literally did not give a premiere for this movie. Neither actor has done publicity interviews for it or discussed their relationship, which is kind of strange and unusual. And uh, I think Disney would just prefer if this film didn't exist. So they're just deciding to flush $50 million down the drain. And for context, A Decent Proposal and Fatal Attraction were both like blockbuster hits commercially. Yeah, I mean, we definitely need to talk about Adrian Lyne's career and personality in more detail, because I found some amazing quotes. Oh, yes. (laughs) The specific context of this movie, which you've just described, is really interesting and depressing and ties into conversations we had a bit about The Last Duel, which had a similar situation of like, that movie was completely buried by the studio. It didn't, they did not want that movie to succeed and they released it very briefly and then kind of buried it. And that also was a Ben Affleck movie. So he really got screwed two times in this merger. But we obviously don't know what is going on or what has gone on behind the scenes in terms of like, the talent here and it's very possible that they both kind of were not keen to do press for this movie because of the personal angle like I could certainly imagine either of them being like I'm not dying to relive this but when you make a movie and you're a movie star like you sign a contract that requires you to do press so Disney could easily have said like well you have to talk to yeah. outlets and you I have mean, to this go is the to thing, a premiere, right? Because like right? I was, I wrote an article today that I'll link to in the show notes that's kind of talking about the way this movie was essentially mothballed by Disney. And the comparison I made was that like, it's extremely plausible that a major part of why this film did not get like a real publicity tour is because the two stars were understandably reticent to go and relive this, as you said. But at the same time, if Emily Blunt and Dwayne Johnson had had the world's biggest fight on Jungle Cruise... Disney would be out there forcing them at gunpoint to do that publicity tour together. Because like Jungle Cruise is a movie that Disney wants to promote and sell and sees as a money spinner regardless of reviews. And also Disney literally released the Death on the Nile movie after delaying it for a significant amount of time. And that's the film which like infamously stars Army Hammer. And like the other people had to kind of promote this and like they had to advertise the film while like one of the most notorious scandals in Hollywood was at the center of this story. And like, Obviously, it's possible that like something dark happened in this relationship, but as far as anyone knows, it was a regular breakup. There's no particular reason from that perspective not to promote the film. So it really does seem like it's Disney actively wanting to deprioritize both movies that have sex in them, obviously, because it's Disney, and just like adult dramas, because the whole studio is just emphasizing big franchise blockbusters. Yeah, and I mean... This is very inside baseball-y, but for people who are not journalists, which I'm going to assume is a 99.9% of our audience, like when you are putting up an article about a movie on a website, like you go to the studio's website to get the like production stills, right? That the studio has provided you that are generally shot by a specific photographer who's been hired by the production to like take flattering photos of the actors, you know. And that's why you'll see like the same one or two pictures on every article about a certain movie, which is a publicity strategy so that you have like an image in your mind that you're associating with that film. And then it sort of just gets repeated and repeated and repeated. And I went to the Hulu press site 
to find a picture to put on my article about the ending of this movie. And even the press images were hot garbage. <laughs> I also, like, literally today was on the Hulu press site yeah. while writing this story, being like, oh, pick an image. And I'm like, this literally could be a picture from any movie or TV show because it's like two people in boring outfits. And I'm like, this is a horny movie. Where's the horny picture? <laughs> I was actually, like, I think some of them are just screenshots of the film, and some of them have to be, like, the worst images that this person (laughs) shot, because there's no way they didn't have an on-set photographer, and I think they just are not making the good pictures available to us. So, And also, it's like, Anna de Armas is, like, one of the hottest people alive, and, like, they didn't just take a picture of her, like, reclining on a piano or something. Come on. (laughs) This is not complicated stuff, and so it really feels clear to me that they did not want anyone to see or think about this movie which i find insulting and frustrating but the general public obviously is not thinking about this stuff and doesn't have that sense of like how this all works even people who follow movies closely so like there was all of this rumor all these rumors about this being like a troubled production because they pulled it from the release calendar and then put it on hulu and like No, the reason they did that is because they're operating in bad faith and don't want movies like this to exist, right? Because I remember when that buzz started a few months ago and you and I would keep talking about this because it's like people are like, oh, like it's been delayed and stuff and they've shunted it onto Hulu because it's no good. And I'm like, no one's seen it. Like it's not, (laughs) there's not been any press screenings. And the fact is this movie is like not that good. Like the average reviews on aggregate are not particularly positive. But my argument would be that that doesn't fucking matter because the vast majority of Disney releases are not good. This has like the same Metacritic score as films like Aladdin and Cruella and that sort of thing. And people watch those movies in droves because people enjoy entertainment cinema. And this is just like a different kind of entertainment cinema. Yeah, it's got like a 51 on Metacritic, which is like smack in the middle, right? That's not, that's not great, but that's not like a 22 where if it's a, you know, that's a bad number. (laughs) That's when the movie's bad, but this is when like a lot of people are going to enjoy it. This is the venom of erotic thrillers, which one (laughs) might argue is also an erotic thriller. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. So that's kind of the context, which I know that sometimes we get really in the weeds with the, again, like economic stuff, but I think you kind of have to in this case, because it so informs how the movie is reaching people. And certainly for me watching it, I was thinking about that a lot, both because obviously the real life relationship, of course you're going to think about that watching them in the movie. But also watching it, I was kind of just like, this is not a disaster. Like it's, it's fine. Like, you know, like what I mean, is going I on? watched it with a couple of friends. We were like heckling it. We were having a lot of fun. It was entertaining. Yeah. And so let's start with sort of the, origins of the movie and then move into Adrian Lyne. So this is actually based on a novel by Patricia Highsmith, also called Deepwater, that was published in 1957. And um, the plot makes a lot more sense (laughs) if it's set in 1957, (laughs) because basically the plot setup is that this guy Vic is like freaking out because his wife is transparently having affairs directly in front of him like she's she's really pushing his nose in it and in the novel which i have not read although i now i'm really curious to he's basically agreed that they won't get a divorce but he will allow her to do whatever she wants sexually which makes sense in the 50s if you're like living in a nice little suburb and like don't want scandal 
but she's kind of courting scandal anyway. Whereas in this film, it's like, why aren't these people divorced? Yes, like, exactly. Definitely it's definitely like, just technically divorce, speaking, right? absolute nonsense. So like, you're watching it and you have to sort of invent these like psychosexual reasons why they'd be staying together. It's like, oh, they just like love to torment each other. <laughs> yeah, but... The script was adapted from the novel by uh, Zach Helm, who is a screenwriter whose main credits are the film Stranger Than Fiction, which is a very charming little movie starring Will Ferrell and Maggie Gyllenhaal and Emma Thompson and Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium, which also stars Emma Thompson. And he's done a couple other things, but I bet he's done a bunch of script doctoring work is my suspicion. And the other credited writer is Sam Levinson, he of Euphoria fame. I do not think Euphoria is a well-written television program. Sam Levinson, definitely someone I would characterize as a controversial figure, especially with regards to the depiction of young women in sexual scenarios. Yes. So I think there are two options here. I don't think they wrote it together. I couldn't find any evidence based on fairly quick Googling that they have anything to do with each other. So I suspect that one of them wrote it and the other one rewrote it. And also Adrian Lyne, like, is the person who obviously came forward with this project and has been sort of shifting it around since 2013. So they will have been rewriting something from Adrian Lyne. Yes. So I think probably either Zach Helm did a script doctoring job, if, as I suspect, that's part of what he does for his career, or that Sam Levinson was brought on to do a rewrite because he's like the hot thing in Hollywood right now. But obviously, we don't know. Seems like salient information that two men wrote this screenplay in which the female character makes literally no sense. That's the biggest problem in the movie is that you're just like, what's happening here? Like, what? (laughs) Who are you? Like, what the fuck? I just don't. Ana de Armas is very good. But she, it's just, it's a fool's errand. Like, it just can't (laughs) be fixed. (laughs) But before we get fully into the movie, I realize this is a great deal of preamble. We we have to talk about Adrian Lyne because he's such a like figure, and really a, a obsolete figure in terms of like the types of movies that he makes. Like there's no one like this anymore. Yeah, in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean the fact that he has like such a specific brand, massive A-list star erotic thrillers that run the gamut from massively well-received Oscar-nominee-filled movies, like winning Oscars, and movies that were critically panned, but absolutely both just still got, like, a ton of money because people were like, I love this, and they were being promoted properly. But yeah, as I said, he's now 81. Uh, For the past 20 years, he has been just chilling in the south of France, working on projects that didn't kind of come to fruition, but mostly, I think, truly just chilling because, like, he's retirement age. But he's a British filmmaker who started in the 70s making TV commercials kind of around the same time that Ridley Scott and various other filmmakers were doing the same thing. And then he made, like, a couple of dramas before making Flashdance, which was, like, his first really big movie, and then kind of started this run of erotic thrillers. Morgan has found some very fun quotes from interviews with him where he's kind of talking about just like his career and his attitude to filming sex scenes and all this sort of thing. So would you like to pick a couple of choice quotes for us, Morgan? (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what to pick of these because there are too many to read. I was just going through the archives and my eyes were like popping out of my head. We were talking about this before we started recording, but the vibe I get from these quotes, some of which are from like 30 years ago when he was 
less old than he is now. But nevertheless, the vibe I get is like a grandpa who is probably a great deal of fun, but also will say something very offensive occasionally. And you have to just be like, well, that's just Grandpa Adrian. And we're just (laughs) going to move on. (laughs) But some of what he's saying is just like, again, like he's just a personality. So... He's already living in France in the early 90s. Um, This is when Indecent Proposal comes out. And he does this long interview with Playboy that's very entertaining because obviously he's very candid. And he says, I'm from London, yeah, but I hate the English. I hate England and I hate being there. It's a depressing place full of depressing people. The people are always moaning and never fucking doing anything about it. Then they're all over anybody like myself who had the happy chance to get out. And he's right. He's right. (laughs) Yeah. But there's a lot, like, reading these articles from when Fatal Attraction came out in the late 80s or Indies Proposal in the early 90s, there's all of this talk about, like, how the feminists are receiving these films because the feminists were not happy with these early Adrian Lyne pictures. And he seems kind of cheerful about provoking this kind of response. Not so much in the sense that he specifically is trying to antagonize feminists, although I think that probably amuses him, but more in the sense that he just wants a response. And that if people are arguing over something he's made or get mad about it, like whoever that might be, that seems to really tickle him. And he seems to like that. And I think probably the thing that would make him most upset would be everyone just being bored <laughs> by some, by a movie he's made. But obviously the issue of like how women are depicted in his movies is very salient because of the nature of these films. And um, I haven't seen Fatal Attraction. I have read the plot summary and it does sound quite sexist. I think Indecent Proposal is quite interesting because like technically it is a movie about a woman who's played by Demi Moore sort of being like pulled between these two men. But she's so good at it and just the way it's executed she really feels like she has a subjectivity in the movie yeah and i mean and you and i both watched unfaithful which we'll talk a bit about more after we've discussed this film because like they're both really similar in interesting ways but like that film is all about the female lead and like yes it's all about like the sex scenes are all about her pleasure and it is by far the most interesting character. And like Diane Lane was nominated for an Oscar because her performance is amazing. You know, obviously different waves of feminism are dominant at different times. But like from the current perspective, I would never say that was a sexist film. No, Unfaithful, I think, is is the best of the three of his that I've seen by far. And the one that's most interested in that female character in a way that feels really radical to me, honestly. I mean, I think that movie is doing something really subversive in the sort of clothes of a movie that's a little bit more traditional, maybe. But then there you have quotes from him where, like, he's talking about his first job right out of school, I think out of, <laughs> like, secondary school, where he was an accountant for a year in an apartment store. And the whole row, I'm quoting now, the whole row of ladies' dressing rooms faced our windows and they had no curtains. For about a year, everyone from the senior partner on down would bring binoculars. Hysterical. And that's all anybody ever did. You get a phone call from somebody and he'd alert you. Terrific in number five. Then one sad day, one of those fucking tragic days, they frosted over the glass. And you're just like, man, that's, you know. And for context, he was born in 1941. So if this was right after he finished school... 
This would have been like 1959 or 1960. So that pretty much sounds like standard behavior for a man in 1960 England. Not to endorse it, but like they hadn't invented respecting women yet. No. And then the other quote... So he's been married to the same woman for like many decades, which you and I both were like, I bet that that's the case. And it was. (laughs) And he says, what does my wife do? Well, nothing really. I think it's good. Meaning the fact that his wife does nothing. Sometimes I complain a little about it, but I know if she did anything, I'd be right there telling her to stop. I know I'd be depressed. (laughs) And you know what? If you're super rich and like, and also like if you're super rich and you are happy enough in your life to be like literally living for 20 years in the south of France in the same house as your wife, you're golden. They figured it out. And he has like five houses. I mean, this this man. Yeah. He seems to be having a good time. He really does. And Diane Lane in the interviews about Unfaithful keeps being like, he's very hard to work with, but also like praises him a lot and him talking about working with actors is really interesting and I just kept thinking about like it's obviously impossible to know without being there and like male directors have historically always been able to do whatever the fuck they wanted vis-a-vis female actors but I was thinking a lot about it in terms of Ananda Armas's performance in this because again I think she's really good even though her character doesn't make any sense but she has this quality of looseness and I think First and foremost, obviously, you want to just credit her talent as an actor. But I was kind of thinking, like, if this guy's made his his career out of making erotic thrillers with, like, these female performers who give great performances in his movies, he must have some quality where, like, he can get that out of them. I certainly hope in a way that's, like, generative as opposed to just being, like, a monster, right? Like, so he's got to have something where people want to work with him. You know? And he has made three films now in which a male character is obsessed with the prospect or the fact of his wife sleeping with another man. So that's obviously a yeah. fixation. Hollywood's premier cuck filmmaker. <laughs> yeah. And he immediately honed in on Ben Affleck and was like, you'll love this role. <laughs> and it's truly one of Ben Affleck's best performances. If you've seen Gone Girl, he's like, the vibe is very similar to Gone Girl, but like the focus is on him so much more. And like, he's really amping it up. And as you said, this character is like kind of a weird guy and the film really explicitly acknowledges that. And I love the fact that he has just like a room full of snails. That's a detail that I could honestly do with in more films. But like kind of the whole point of this movie is there's a lot of ambiguity for the first like hour and a half over just like the morality of both of the characters because... You're kind of introduced to it like via Ben Affleck's character and he's sort of spectating as his wife is just like treating him really badly. Like she is just doesn't care about his feelings and is off cheating on him all the time. And there's a little kind of Greek chorus of pals in his social circle of like rich people who do nothing but party all the time. And they're just like, you need to rein in Melinda, man. And he's like, no, I'm completely fine with it, which like he blatantly isn't. And I also want to call out the men they've cast playing her lovers absolutely astounding casting they've got like a trio of himbos playing her various lovers and they've got jacob alordi who is sort of like up and coming you know hunk from euphoria which i don't watch playing a very beautiful himbo and then they've got finn whitrock playing another himbo and they've got another actor whose name i don't recall 
playing himbo number one but it's like god their their performances and their like overall appearance and vibe and like their the way they look age-wise compared to uh ben affleck is amazing and just like the way that ben affleck is shot in this movie is fantastic because as we know ben is like a very large man Anna de Armas is like very small but they're obviously not trying to make her look vulnerable in this because like it's all about her just being like a vixen but like with Ben there's loads of scenes that are kind of like the way he's shot is very much making the most of that kind of sad sack appearance he can have a lot of the time and like we've all seen pictures of him you know smoking depressively while wearing a saggy grey <laughs> shirt and he's introduced in this movie cycling wearing a sweaty grey shirt and bicycle shorts because uh, he cycles everywhere because he's like a former tech guy and they've given him a little former tech guy wardrobe with like a little gilet and stuff which I really liked as a detail but there is like some scenes where he needs to seem kind of intimidating and then they immediately turn the camera around so you see like his unbelievably muscled Batman back and you're like oh shit this guy's actually like really dangerous which I really thought was like a great detail in how to use his physicality. Yeah I think he is completely amazing in this movie which was part of why I was like this whole release and press situation is weird because even if it would be really awkward for him like wouldn't you want yeah, to promote like, your uh, amazing wouldn't performance wouldn't you be annoyed already by like the last duel being dumped like he's obviously like has a huge ego doesn't he want to be appreciated for his work <laughs> yeah and I feel like he's on kind of the run of his career right now in terms of like consecutive good performances as you said this is obviously super similar to Gone Girl in many ways, but I think the fact that he's willing to do performances like this speaks well of him, despite his obviously massive ego. Like, the fact that he knows he projects something kind of pathetic and is willing to use that, I think is really smart and actually kind of unegotistical. Oh, then it's like a snake eating its own tail, because obviously yeah. then it's like in service of a great performance, which is egotist, like, you know, not in a bad way, but like it all sort of serves him in the end. There was a great review of this movie on The Ringer by the film critic Adam Naiman, whose work is always great, talking about how Ben Affleck is like the great self-aware actor of like our time. And I think it's so true because what he is saying at the beginning of that piece is, at the beginning of his career, Ben Affleck was really dinged for being a bad actor. And Matt Damon, by contrast, was like the talented one of the two of them. And I do tend to think that Matt Damon is a better actor than Ben Affleck, but that part of what was so sort of clever about Gone Girl is that he's a playing a person who is a bad actor in that movie, right? But it works because he's performing it really well. And in this too, it's not exactly that because it's not happening in with the sort of like public scrutiny of the media like that's not a part of this movie but the sort of difference between the public and private persona in terms of like him talking to all of their friends and then like what's really going on in his head he sort of wavers back and forth between that in a really interesting way like he's very charming when he talks to the other like middle-aged women in this movie, which I actually thought they could have done a ton more yeah. with. Because she's going off with all these young men. And again, the movie doesn't make as much out of their age difference as it could have. I think, obviously, it's all like subtextually present that she's much younger than he is. Yeah. But So in real life, 
he's 49 and she is 33 and this was filmed three years ago but visually speaking she definitely skews young like she's a very youthful looking person whereas in this they've made full effect of his sort of gray five o'clock shadow which is more about a sort of 11 o'clock shadow in this film yeah, and so it's not like that's not a part of the movie. Like, you visually you're seeing it, but they don't really talk. I don't think they ever actually explicitly talk no. about it. And that's fair. It's a, clearly a choice that the movie has made. But I found that interesting and thought that, again, there could have been kind of more of that. Especially in these scenes where, like, he's talking with the other women in their social circle and like it's not sexual there's a little bit of a flirtatious vibe but in that way that like married people who know each other will just kind of be a little flirtatious and it's not yeah like it's just kind of how they interact but he's obviously really popular because he's this like charming pleasant rich man right and then there will be other scenes where he's watching her And he'll get this look in his eye that I've definitely seen in other performances. He does it really well. And it's in Gone Girl for sure. Where there will just be this like dead look in his eye. The dead-eyed gaze. Yeah. That is really scary. And is totally different from the like charming movie star type of guy who you get kind of flirting a little bit. With his, like, middle-aged lady friends. Once again, truly a bummer that he did not get a good Batman movie to be in. Because that's a great trait for a Batman. (laughs) Yeah. And so, right at the beginning of the movie, she's got her, like, new boy toy. And he tells him that she had this previous, you know, friend. Yeah. He's cornered this boy toy. They were at this, like, really big party. And this, like, drunk 28-year-old or whatever who's got this sort of blonde surfer hair is like, hey, like... It's really fine that you're letting me like hang out with your wife. And then Ben Affleck is like, oh, uh, my wife was hanging out with Martin McRae recently. Um, He's gone missing. And then literally just like says that he killed this man that his wife was sleeping with. The guy's like, that's not a funny thing to joke about. And Affleck completely seriously is like, I'm not joking. And you can't tell whether he's serious or not. I mean, he's clearly trying to frighten this guy, but... From the performance, it's impossible to tell what is going on in his head, which is a neat little trick to just be able to be like, I have no fucking clue what the deal is here. And and so it immediately gets around to all of their rich friends, obviously, who are like, that's such a fucked up thing to say. And then she is like horrified that he would be so rude. What an appalling thing to do, which again, coming from someone who's like having affairs literally like in the house while he's there, maybe a little bit much. Like, that's, you know, okay. They have this dinner where the boyfriend comes over and Affleck has to, like, make nice to him. And then once again is like, by the way, I did kill that guy. And you're just... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's such a good dinner scene as well. It's so fun. Because, like, this movie, honestly, I was, like, laughing so fucking much. It's, like, comedy of the year. Because, like, when the boy toy shows up at the door, Ben Affleck shows up, like, without... Anna de Armas, and it's just like, oh, come in for dinner. And the guy's like, isn't Melinda here? And he's like, no, it's just going to be you and me. Is that weird? <laughs> it's like hilarious. And then when he's made dinner, he's made lobster. And the guy's like allergic to shellfish. It's like everything he's doing is just put this guy on the back foot because like he knows he's going to fuck his wife. <laughs> and they have this daughter who's like six years old. Great Very daughter. Very good child <laughs> in a movie, I thought. And she doesn't, obviously doesn't know exactly what's going on, but clearly can sense that, like, 
something weird is happening. Yeah. She just doesn't like this. And so it's not friendly. Also an interesting detail is like, because, so like Ben Affleck's character is retired because like he made all his money making this microchip that like they put into drones that kill people which is a great little immoral detail for how he got rich yeah um because at the beginning i was like i wonder what horrible job he's doing to get this rich and the answer is worse than you could imagine but he is the primary parent for this kid which i thought was like a really good detail that sort of is the one thing that feels like it's not from a book that's written in 1957 that is from the book oh Um, interesting (laughs) i shouldn't have forgotten that patricia highsmith knows what's up (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly all the details because I haven't read it, but according to the Wikipedia summary, (laughs) he's really, like, proud of his daughter and is, like, a doting, you know, parent. And I think part of what he's sort of mad about in the novel is that his wife isn't very interested in their daughter. And I think that part of what she's doing in the book, it seems to me, based in terms of purely plot stuff, is presenting this woman who winds up in a marriage that is bad and potentially dangerous, who is not like a saint, right? Like, I think you see a lot of narratives about women in marriages that become sort of traps who are like sad victims who are like, I must protect my child. And like, this woman clearly sucks. Like she obviously sucks in the book too. And that's kind of, I think not Highsmith's point and i think what gets lost in translation to the movie is that you just don't understand again why these people are married at all what the fuck this woman's deal is like yeah okay she likes to sleep with a bunch of young guys but like why i mean theoretically okay sure like but i spent like a lot of this movie and this is kind of a spoiler or like a reverse spoiler when my friend and i were watching this movie one of my friends was like oh i'm sure they're in it together They've got to be in it together. Like, they're both, like, killing people because, like, her lover's gone missing. And I was like, no, I bet that she's a serial killer and she's, like, killing her lovers and now he's cottoned on and that's going to be the twist. That's not the twist. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I was being overly generous to how fucked up this couple was. I was like, I could have gone for them being more fucked up because that would make more sense. (laughs) It didn't even begin to occur to me that something like that would happen because I just don't think the movie is like on the level of thinking about her. Yeah, I was fully like, oh, she's killing her lovers. (laughs) No, I think she just doesn't make any sense. And again, like I want to give Darmus a ton of credit. She's so good. I find Anna Darmus really interesting like as a star figure because really partly thanks to just her relationship with Ben Affleck being so public. Like she's become this extremely public figure and the timing of her her movies is really good because like she's going to have like a couple of really big movies coming out relatively soon, which is going to like save her from becoming one of these people that people kind of consider in their minds to be a tabloid star. Obviously before this, her big breakout role is Knives Out, which is really truly the opposite of this. Like it's a relatively family friendly movie where she's playing a really likable character where sex appeal is just like not part of the characterization at all. And then before that, so that was 2019. And then before that, her other kind of big mainstream movie was a supporting role as the love interest in Blade Runner 2049 in 2017, which uh, sucked. But you know, not her fault, but like garbage role in a not very good movie. Um, Quite sexist. But like, she has a lot of range as a performer and also is someone who is very much a sex symbol. And her next two movies are, she's in a thriller called The Grey Man, which is by the Russo brothers. And it's mostly going to be men. It's a Chris Evans movie. We'll see. 
but like her personal big next movie is that she is doing the Marilyn Monroe biopic by Andrew Dominic, which we mentioned a few episodes ago because Andrew Dominic also directed The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Great movie. But that is like, that is an intriguing one because it's coming out on Netflix. So it's probably going to get like a lot of attention. And she is playing Marilyn Monroe and it's rated NC-17. And he just was like, I'm not going to recut it. So, so like, like what's you. happening in this movie? Because movies that are rated <laughs> NC-17 don't happen anymore. This movie, although we've spent this whole episode talking about erotic thrillers, this movie doesn't actually have that much fucking in it. Like, it has a lot of fucking for a movie that comes out nowadays, but it's also not actually sexy movie, right? You're not like, oh, this is appealing. It's like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, there's very little sex in this. There's a lot of sort of like off-screen fingering. And people aren't necessarily enjoying it very much, which is kind of the opposite of what I said about Unfaithful, where people are really enjoying themselves. Well, first, regarding Ana de Armas, she was supposed to have her big year in 2020. Yeah. Because she's in No Time to Die, and this, and there was another one, and then the pandemic happened and everything got delayed and she got kind of screwed. So I think she's kind of been in limbo for a couple of years, but obviously, you know, she's going to be fine but it was clearly a bit of a weird situation and i actually think that the fact that the stuff got delayed meant that her stardom got more tied to the tabloid stuff than it would have been otherwise yeah but they broke up and then she'll still keep making movies so like it's fine but in terms of the sex in this movie indecent proposal doesn't have very much sex either there are a couple of scenes between demi moore and woody harrelson who plays her husband and then the plot of that movie is that they're desperate for money they're totally broke and they go to vegas as a last ditch effort to try to win money gambling and robert redford plays this like super billionaire guy who catches sight of her and offers them a million dollars if she'll spend the night with him and you never see any of that night of them together because the whole point is that like Woody Harrelson is going crazy like not knowing what happened and Robert Redford very hot in Indecent Proposal and like so you see everybody talking about it both before and after but it would kind of ruin the film if you actually saw the sex because it has to be this imaginary thing in everybody's head and then Unfaithful it's about this suburban housewife who winds up having this affair with this like sexy French rare book dealer in Manhattan, which would be a very funny <laughs> depiction of rare book dealing. Um, but you have to see a bunch of the sex because it's all about her having this like intense erotic experience, right? And with this movie, I feel like there's just like they haven't decided. Like it's just kind of like we're not quite sure. And so you see some stuff, but like, I felt like part of what wasn't working was that clearly in order for the relationship to make any sense, you have to have a sense of him getting off on her doing this. But their relationship on like a sexual level, I just didn't understand what was happening. I was like, I don't feel like he does like it. I feel like he just is this weird passive man who is just like, my wife is really driving me crazy. Yeah. And right? she just like, kind of know? wants to torture him. Yes. Because yeah. on the one hand, she's like enjoying the lifestyle to which she has become accustomed. But also she's essentially a housewife. Like obviously she's not like doing housework and like she's only kind of nominally taking care of her kid. But she both has freedom and doesn't have freedom 
which is a very 50s situation. You said before I watched the movie, like, oh, this came out, this was from a book from the 50s. And like, you're just like, why the fuck don't they get divorced? And I, I'm pretty sure I also would have thought that even if you hadn't told me, because like, you truly are like, why aren't they? And when they mention divorce, like on screen about two thirds of the way movie, you're like, yeah, why, why don't you? (laughs) I didn't read reviews beforehand, but I saw someone on Twitter or something be like, it's absurd that these people aren't divorced. And for the first maybe 45 minutes, I was like, you know what? Marriage is very weird. And and these two people are freaks. <laughs> right. And also people just don't split up. And like my parents are divorced and like had a very boring marriage. It was not like this. But like they got divorced way lo- after they should have. And I have also spoken to plenty of people yeah. who had parents who had a similar situation. And like it's hard to get to that point. So I think there's, and also there's like relationships are weird and like inertia sets in. So for the first 45 minutes, I was kind of like, you know, clearly they're in this state where like, this is kind of just what happens and neither of them wants to talk about it or like acknowledge it really. And then it got to a point where I was like, no, this is just bad writing. Yeah, like, like there, are, there are dead people. <laughs> I mean, I think we should talk about just spoilers for the ending now, but before we go yeah, there, I just yeah. want to mention Tracy Letts is in this film in a very, oh very, God. very funny role because in the midst of this absolutely like torrid business, you know, one of her boyfriends start, goes missing and everyone's like, oh, you murderer, like how did you get murdered, whatever. Tracy Letts is one of the people who shows up in their social circle of like rich suburban party goer types. And um, for those who don't know, character actor, he's like late 50s, but looks older. And great American playwright. And great American playwright. How could, I, how could I forget? Of course, he is a legendary. He's playing a writer and like he's introduced as like, oh, I've got this unproduced screenplay based on me. And it's about this noir guy who uncovers a conspiracy in his hometown. And you're just like, it's so funny because like it's clearly the most like annoying, stupid guy. You know, Ben Affleck and his pals are like rolling their eyes at him. Honestly, I love that like the friends that he has in this movie because like it's not like subtle character work, but there's just a lot of like fun middle-aged pals in there. But this guy, obviously, because he like thinks that he's the protagonist of a noir story, starts to investigate Vic and Melinda Van Allen, and he's like, "Oh, I'm sure that Vic's a murderer, and he's like killing this woman's lovers, and like it's in you know he starts like, looking into this in like the most ham-fisted way possible and confronting them, and like his much younger hot wife is just so fucking embarrassed and is like, "I'm so sorry he's doing this," and at this point, I was still like, "Well, Ben Affleck's innocent." <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. He's not. He's murdering people. (laughs) Well, so in the book, according to Wikipedia, again, I have not read this novel. It, he didn't kill the first guy. And you never quite know in the movie whether he killed the first yeah, guy. Yeah, I, I really don't think that he killed the first guy. I was like, he got the idea from that. Because once he does start killing yeah. people, he's terrible at it. <laughs> right. And so there's like a new, he tells the the first boyfriend that he like hit the guy on the head with a hammer and there is a news report when they eventually find the body that he was shot in the head, which I feel like is kind of a, you know, sign that he didn't do it. But you don't know, which is part of what I like about the movie is that it's not, the whole situation is, is left a little bit sort of oddly ambiguous until you literally see him smack a guy over the head with an enormous rock. And at that point you really see the like classic people are bad at crime situation which also at play in unfaithful but like this just watching the like panic of um 
Richard Gere, who is to kill somebody and unfaithful. And it's, you're just like, oh, normal people. I mean, no one should kill anyone, but it's just like these random, random people. That's just not a good idea. And so he like ties a bunch of rocks to this body and like puts it in this gorge. And um, the family goes on a picnic nearby, which is the wife's idea. And um, he notices that it's kind of floated back up to the top. And so he's like, I'll go back in the morning and I will fully put it I was down. just like so amused when he was hiding that body too. Because I was like, you're using your own belt to like tie on the rocks and your fingerprints are everywhere. It's like forensic evidence all over him. <laughs> Terrible. So he goes back the next morning. And meanwhile, Melinda finds her friend slash sex friend's wallet with his ID in Ben Affleck's snail basement, which I don't think we've spoken about enough. And it's like, oh shit, he's been killing these people. And so she sends Tracy Lutz after him and starts like packing a suitcase to like get out of there. And um, so Tracy Lutz follows him and like finds him in the, in the middle of like trying to push this body down into the water with a stick, incredibly undignified. And, like, the conversation they have there is, like, they're having a conversation where, like, Tracy Lutz is, like, standing at the top of the gorge and Ben Affleck is, like, literally standing on a corpse and his voice is cracking because he's a bad liar. He's like, oh, I'm just, I'm just here. Like, I'm looking for my wife's scarf. And it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, you're, like, not a criminal mastermind. (laughs) It's really bad. So Tracy Lutz sees the body and then, like, runs off and is like, I knew it! I knew you were the wrong, the bad guy! And then he's, like, trying to text his wife while he's, like, driving away. I mean, away. this was some real fucking TV movie vibes during this. I was like, well, oh, this is nonsense. The, not not good bad. filmmaking here. <laughs> I feel like, I think this is in the Adam Nain review where he <laughs> is, like, it feels like the movie knows you're going to be laughing at it. And it's just, like, fine, <laughs> you know? Well, it was also like in one of the interviews where it was like Adrian Lyne, the director, is like, oh, it's so easy shooting on digital. I've never done it before. You can just set up shots and film them. And I was like, well, when I was watching Unfaithful, that movie was very beautiful and felt very practiced and mature and had all these like symbolic scenes with like wind as a metaphor for how her life is in chaos. And in this, you've just got like Tracy Letts texting and crashing his car like it's some like dumb TV movie. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, this one isn't very good. Yeah, so he drives his car into the gorge by accident, and their little daughter, meanwhile at home, has, like, pushed the suitcase into the pool and is like, we're not gonna leave, and Anandarmus is like, okay then, and then- I also don't believe for a minute that she would take the daughter. I see, I was like, when the daughter was like, we're not gonna leave, I was like, wow, you're not just leaving your daughter with bed? <laughs> well, we don't know yeah. that that was her plan. I mean, who knows? So she, like, burns- the evidence, the the wallet, and then, you know, they're together happily forever, I guess. What happens in the book is that she's like, this guy is obviously killing these people, but she can't really get away. And so she sets up the, like, meeting at the gorge with these two men. The Tracy Let's character figures it out and runs off to the police. Vic comes home and murders her and then the police come and arrest him and take him away and that's the end of the novel. So that's obviously saying something very different about like masculinity and violence and rage and basically like I was reading some other essay about this book 
and that like he's so charming that everyone in town is just like well just fix just so great he's just such a great guy and meanwhile she's like he's killing people <laughs> like Ah! Yeah, and that he's clearly a sociopath which was Highsmith's specialty and he winds up killing his wife whereas in this it's like the gone girl thing where they're like well we may be fucked up but we're just gonna stay together because because I don't want to watch the version of the movie that's like based on that book especially like in the context of the entire characters and scenario they've created with this movie but I also kind of was just like I feel like you should have made this relationship like more fucked up in a fun way you know she should also have been doing some murders or something like you know the final act I was a bit like but I still had fun well I just think the I mean I wasn't necessarily like dying to watch her get murdered but the problem is the movie has no ideas yeah its thesis is fundamentally chaotic (laughs) yeah and I think what makes the movie work is that the performances are good and sort of in a strange way there's stuff kind of on the outside of the movie or the outside of the main plot that the detail there works a lot better so like the let's character perfect as you were saying, like, that guy feels completely real to me. Affleck as this, like, rich guy was so perfectly done. I loved that the movie actually told us where his money was from, because normally in the great tradition of, like, novels and movies about rich people going back hundreds of years, they just don't mention it. And the money's always from something bad, right? And you see people kind of having arguments about the drone stuff. So it's not as though everyone's just accepting this. Like, it is clearly, like, uncomfortable to him, too, and he doesn't really want to think about it. But it's, like, this lingering thing. But he also is, like, all of his rich guy hobbies are just, like, really embarrassing and weird. So (laughs) he's got the snails. He also has this, like, little office in, like, a building somewhere in town where he, like, makes this little photography magazine for, like, himself. And all of his photos are awful, which has to be on purpose. Like, there's <laughs> just no like way that was Blurry pictures of his wife's feet. <laughs> yeah. And that was, like, such a perfect detail to me. And, like, as you said, the scenes with his friends I really liked. Also, it's all in Louisiana, which is an interesting choice that felt quite specific. It's this community of clearly just, like, really rich people who've all bought giant houses that are all either visibly morally dubious historical houses or like modern design monstrosities with lots of like white paint and minimalism well and there's like one scene in a restaurant like a modern restaurant but there's like a big mural that's been painted with like a plantation scene (laughs) and you're like "Mm." and that also felt tied into the drone stuff right like the sort of wealth that's l- yeah. lurking because they are like the surface, super rich right? unlike the people in unfaithful who are just like well-off people who live in the rich suburbs yeah and i really liked the kid as i said she felt very specific to me yeah and part of what doesn't work about the movie i think is that he feels like he totally genuinely loves that kid and the environment in that home is bad because her mom is sleeping with all these random people. So like you would just take the kid and go, right? It just doesn't make sense for him to stay without giving you a compelling depiction of their 
sex life so that you understand that there's like something else going on. So yeah, there's just like a hole at the center, but everything kind of surrounding it is pleasurable. So it's kind of fine, I think, is where I come down. Yeah. I mean, messy movie that we both enjoyed watching and also feels very refreshing because people just don't make this sort of film in America. Like a movie about adults having an entertaining, fucked up, weird relationship and they're both really famous, good looking people. That used to be the number one type of movie that was made in Hollywood. And now there was like one of them a year and they bury them under a rock that you have to follow a set of clues to find. You know, it's like, oh, it's out on Hulu, is it? Interesting. Okay. (laughs) I mean, yeah, you were mentioning at the beginning that these movies used to make so much money. Fatal Attraction was the number one worldwide grossing film the year that it came out. And it got nominated for six Academy Awards. (laughs) That was a different time. And I do think we should say just before we... And, like, a little bit about Unfaithful, which we've mentioned, but the ending of that movie is very similar to this, to the point where, like, it's almost exactly the same. It's almost a remake. Yeah. But the first, like, the setup is completely different, or, like, the way the movie is framed is completely different. I mean, it's far more emotionally generous, because, like, kind of the point is that the main couple in that, which is Richard Gere and Diane Lane, like, do actually love each other. They have a very functional marriage, And the problem is that Diane Lane is bored and she, by pure happenstance, meets this guy who is just like unbelievably attractive and they have a vibe and she just spends a long time just having like this back and forth with herself where like she knows that she has the option of having an affair with this guy, but like she just like can't help herself. And the way the movie just depicts her being completely like blown away by lust and it's just like so into this guy and is like completely addicted and has all this conflict over it but like she's like I just can't help it and she knows it's gonna ruin her life but she can't stop herself but she's also not depicted as a bad person and like both the parents have this really nice relationship with their kid and obviously when the husband inevitably finds out he's like just goes nuts so it's like a very different kind of vibe it also like is just a much more well-rounded movie and it was kind of interesting to see that that got like really honestly similar levels of mixed reviews at the time like it was more acclaimed it was more of a mainstream movie like Diane Lane obviously got an Oscar nomination but like it wasn't like oh we're taking this movie really seriously it was like oh here's this movie that's like fine and I'm like this movie's actually really good (laughs) like even like production design and stuff like really so much better than a lot of movies you're seeing now (laughs) yeah I mean it number one speaks to like the degradation of the Hollywood film that if that movie came out now everyone would be like it's a masterpiece like oh my god but also like it's a movie about like obviously Diane Lane is incredibly gorgeous but like the character is quite normal like in terms of her personality and life right and it's all about her sexual desire and pleasure and I think that that makes people very uncomfortable and I think Like, she winds up staying with her husband, who, again, spoiler alert, like, kills the other guy that she was sleeping with. And I think what's really kind of transgressive about the movie, even though it ends with the family unit, like, staying together, is that it's now, like, built on this horrible thing. Yeah. Right? And there's a scene in the movie where they have this kind of confrontation, and... Like, he clearly feel he's obviously feels guilty about killing this guy, but he mainly feels like he's been victimized. Which, like, obviously, like, that sucks that your wife was cheating on you, but, like, he can't yeah. really And he's like, I wish I killed like, you, like, I want to murder you. And it's, like, it's yeah. so dark. 
But then the movie has to kind of, like, paper over that to, like, keep them in this, again, heterosexual little, like, bubble. I mean, obviously she's also sleeping with a man, but, like, she's sort of gone outside of the marriage. And it is presented as, like, oh, we're it's all gonna be fine. And you get the sense that, like, it is not. Like, this is... They have... It's fucked up. And I think that... Like, I really love that movie. I would highly recommend it. And I feel like that's a great example of what this movie doesn't succeed at, which is, like, having ideas that aren't, like, people lecturing you about stuff, right? But they're in the sort of relationships and text of the movie, whereas this one was just like, ah! <laughs> like, we, we don't yeah. know! <laughs> I mean, while the only other Adrian Lyne movie I've seen is Flashdance, the thing I do know is that, like, one of the things he's famous for, apart from, like, the obvious, is that he specializes in, the, like, these characters having these big moral dilemmas... And having these internal conflicts and stuff. And there isn't really a moral dilemma in Deep Water. Because, like, they're both just terrible people. (laughs) Yes, precisely. I hope their daughter has lots of therapy as an adult. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, this girl is, like, alarmingly well-adjusted. This can't last. (laughs) No, no. But, yeah, like, super fun movie. Certainly worth a watch. Check out Unfaithful. I also thought Indy's proposal was super fun. One of, if not the best Redford performances I've ever seen. He normally likes to play the hero. And in that movie, he is playing a weird man. (laughs) (laughs) And next week, we're going to watch another movie about marriage. Rosemary's Baby. Yes. Just, Just making our way through the sort of like canon of, isn't marriage great? Yeah. A horror classic. Yes. I mean, I'm of the opinion that most great works of art in the Western canon are about how marriage is a nightmare. So we'll just <laughs> That's your opinion. Another one. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I haven't seen this since college, so like over 10 years. And I remember thinking it was amazing, but I do not remember the details at all, except for Mia Farrow running across the street while pregnant with actual cars driving at her. So, yeah, it should be fun. And then we will have a Patreon episode up after the Oscars where we talk about whatever fresh hell that nightmare ceremony visited upon us. So you can listen to that at our Patreon, as well as our recent bonus episode about the Gene Kelly and Judy Garland movie Pirate, which was a ton of fun to talk about. Another great movie about marriage. Yeah. See? See? So yeah, that's at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. Gabby, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on the Daily Dot where I wrote about deep water uh, very recently. And you can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.